in heaven, thank you for this day that you have made. May we be glad and rejoice in it. May we be glad and rejoice in every day of life that you have provided and given to us so freely. And thank you most of all for the grace that you give to us in sending your Son so that we might live eternally with him if we have accepted him into our hearts as Lord and Savior because he truly is Lord and Savior. I thank you for these women. Thank you for their hunger for your word to get to know you better. We praise and thank you for the fellowship that we have enjoyed in our group times. And now we pray that you would settle our minds and hearts that we might really take another very difficult lesson. But I get through this and and give you glory for being the sovereign God that you are. And even if things are so complicated that we maybe don't understand them, we still know that it's all in your sovereign plan. And may we praise you and worship you and help me, Lord, to to speak clearly and quickly and um, that we might just all leave here having been glad that we were in the house of the Lord's name. Amen. Noah, the son of Lamech and grandson of Methuselah and great-grandson of the godly Enoch was the last of the antediluvian patriarchs. What does antediluvian mean, everybody? For the flood or pre-flood. He was also the last, along with his wife and his three sons and three daughter-in-laws, of the entire antediluvian population because all others perished. Since we are told that Lamech, his father, had other sons and daughters besides Noah, this means that all of Noah's brothers and sisters and his nieces and nephews perished in the flood, those who were still alive at the time the flood came. Since Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, also had other sons and daughters besides Lamech, This means that all of Noah's aunts and uncles and cousins who were still alive at the time of the flood likewise perished. It may even be that Noah himself had other sons and daughters besides the three sons who are mentioned in the scripture, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if that is the case, that he did have other sons and daughters, which it probably is since he was 600 years old by the time the flood came, then all of his other sons and daughters, plus all of his grandchildren who were born prior to the flood, also perished. Had you ever thought about that? Now, an obvious deduction from both the fact that God only found eight righteous souls to protect from his own hand of judgment and also from the verses that we're going to be looking at in Genesis chapter 6 is that godlessness and evil waxed worse and worse, got greater and greater on earth until not only were all the Canaanites affected, but also the Sethites too became contaminated with rampant sin. The last days of the post or the pre-flood age must have been absolutely horrendous days, days of great trial and trauma and tragedy for poor Noah as he watched in horror as the world became ever more satanic, which is what we'll look at this morning, and violent and godless with each passing year. And as his preaching regarding the coming judgment, which of course he knew about, went totally unheeded other than for his wife and his three sons. So Noah, as we're going to see in our next group of lessons, 
the next two or three or four or five, however long it will take us to get through the flood, Noah himself was truly one of the greatest men that this world has ever seen. And it's going to be a pleasure to look at his testimony of faith, which, Lord willing, we will do next week. However, before looking at the exemplary faith of Noah, we have a far less pleasant task to do, and that's what we have to address this morning in our lesson, which is called Antediluvian Degeneracy. We have to look at how wicked the world before the flood got and why it was necessary for God to send the flood. Now, in this lesson, we're going to discuss, as I said, the extent, extent of the wickedness and the degeneracy of those days, and we will consider three, uh, four subdivisions. And the first part, which is by far, so don't panic when you see I'm only getting <laughs> in part one. Part one of our outline is going to take me most of the morning, all right? Uh, we'll look at Satan's scheme as we look at verses 1, 2, and 4. And then very quickly, we'll discuss verse 3, the spirit's strife. Then verses seven, 5 to 7, the sovereign's sadness over this whole situation. And then very briefly, we'll look at verse 8, saving solution, because we'll pick up really on that verse more next week. So let's begin. I'm going to read Genesis 6, verses 1, 2, and 4. I'm going to skip over 3 right now and read 1, 2, and 4 for Satan's scheme. It says, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Look down at verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Well, the first verses here of Genesis 6 present for us a transitional passage in that they summarize for us the antidiluvian era uh, by telling us on the one hand that a major characteristic of that period of time was a great increase in population. Notice it says, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Great increase in population, as well as it being a great time of wickedness. You don't see that here, but you would see it if you read verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And also it was a time of strange happenings. What did I read about in verse 4? There were giants in the earth in those days. So on one hand, we have those things. On the other hand, these verses prepare us for our study of Noah and his great faith and the reason why God sent the global flood. The beginning section of Genesis 6, especially these verses I just read to you, verses 1, 2, and 4, is also a very perplexing passage of the Scripture which has resulted in a great deal of theological debate. So at this point in our study, we have to put on our thinking caps. It becomes necessary, I'm sorry to say, but it does become necessary for us to discuss the various interpretations about these verses to see which one best fits the original Hebrew of the text and also other scripture. Okay? Now, we are told in verse 1 of a great multiplication of men. 
in the antediluvian age, and that these men produce daughters who, according to verse 2, are fair. They're described as fair, which means what? They were very beautiful to behold. Well, there's nothing very difficult about that, is there? I mean, a great uh, population increase. Men had daughters, which makes sense, and the daughters were very beautiful. So nothing difficult so far. We then read also in verse 2 that the sons of God saw these beautiful daughters of men and took them wives of all they choose, that they chose. And then in verse 4, we discover that the result of the physical union between the sons of God and the beautiful daughters of men was mighty men, which were of old men of renown. But at the beginning of that same verse, verse 4, we also read that there were giants in the earth in those days. So a reading of this passage, as you can well imagine, has brought forth a number of different responses. First of all, for the person who is looking for reasons to ridicule and scoff the Bible, they will immediately choose Genesis chapter 6 as one place to point the finger and laugh. Their response will be a mockery of the scripture saying, it's just as foolish, look here, just totally as foolish as such stories as Jack and the Beanstalk, because here we are reading about giants. This is just as strange as some of those legends about uh, giants and fairies and elves and dragons, etc. Or the accounts in Greek mythology. But it's just as strange, you know, as, as stories of Greek mythology where you had gods and goddesses marrying human beings and coming, you know, bringing forth all kinds of supernatural creatures. So those who like to scoff the Bible will categorize not only Genesis chapter 6, the beginning verses, but the rest of the chapter and chapter 7 as well about the global flood um, as nothing but fiction. Actually, they like to say, well, this is proof that the whole Bible is fiction. And it's certainly not something that we should take seriously as a blueprint for life, much less for eternal life. So that's what the scoffer will say. But within Christendom, within Christendom itself, there are three primary interpretations for these opening verses of Genesis chapter 6. And they are what we are going to consider um, seriously and carefully now because... I do believe, and I am sure that you also believe, that the Bible is God-inspired and not merely interesting fiction. Now, because the phrase, if you notice the phrase, sons of God, because that is the primary cause for the difference of opinion in the interpretation of these verses, that's the phrase that we really need to consider first and foremost. And then, of course, we'll also discuss the word giants later on. But first of all, we're going to address the little phrase, sons of God. A widely held view about the phrase, the sons of God, is that it speaks of the godly line of the Sethites, who, um, while the daughters of men, were the beautiful and sensual daughters of the Canaanites. All right? Now, those who hold to this interpretation say that the godly line of Seth, 
began to marry, the, the men of the godly line of Seth began to marry the beautiful, unbelieving daughters of the line of Cain. And this view has been supported by many, many godly men, such as C.I. Schofield. So if you have a Schofield Bible, he will um, support this view. Also, uh, John Calvin, Matthew Henry, uh, Chrysostom, and others. And it has to its advantage the fact that it does not have to address the matter of supernatural beings, such as angels, having physical union, sexual union, with human beings, all right, which is yet a second interpretation. This view can also, is, is also strong because it fits very well into the context of chapters 4 and 5. Regarding, you know, remember in chapter 4 we talked about the ungodly line of Cain, and in chapter 5 we talked about the godly line of Seth. So it fits very well in the context. However, this view also has some very definite problems. First of all, the phrase sons of God, which is in the Hebrew, bene Elohim is only used three other times in the Old Testament. All three of those times are found in the book of Job. Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7. And in each one of those passages where we find Bene Elohim, very clearly it is speaking about not human beings, but angels. Okay? Another very similar phrase, which is Bar Elohim, as you see right here, is found in Daniel. Daniel 3.25, and that term was used by King Nebuchadnezzar when he looked down into the fiery furnace and he saw not only Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, but it says that he saw a fourth like Bar Elohim, a fourth like a son of the gods. And that also, that fourth similar reference found in the Old Testament speaks of either an angel, that he saw an angel down in the fiery furnace with the three um, Hebrew boys, or, this is what I believe, that he saw a pre-incarnate vision of Christ, who I think was down there with the three. But regardless, all other occasions of this term or similar occasions do not speak of supernatural beings, but speak of, I mean, do speak of supernatural beings and not of humans. Now, another problem with accepting the sons of God as a reference to the men of Seth's line is that this was not the view of those godly men who interpreted the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Does anybody know what that version of the Old Testament is called? When they interpreted the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. Is it up there? Yes, it's up there. All you have to do is read it. The Septuagint. They, those who interpreted the Septuagint actually interpreted the term Bene Elohim as angels of God. Because, you see, all angels, whether holy angels or fallen angels, all of them were directly created by God, you know, rather than having been born of their own kind. Angels cannot reproduce and have baby angels. So all angels are sons of God, you see, in that sense. Also, neither Seth 
nor any of his godly descendants have previously been referred to as sons of God in the, in the book of Genesis so far, have they? We haven't, they haven't been called sons of God. Actually, this term, the sons of God, could only be spoken of one man. And who would that one man have been? Well, other than son of God, I'm talking about, a son, well, a son with a small s would be Adam. Because Adam was the only small s son of God who was, you know, directly created by God himself. Well, the phrase bene elim, right there that you see, also occurs um, in Psalm 29.1 and Psalm 89.6. And there again it refers to angels. It's interpreted as sons of the mighty, but if you read those psalms, you'll know that they definitely are speaking of angels. Josephus, who was the first century Jewish historian, and also all other ancient Jewish Bible interpreters and all other early Christian Bible interpreters have all interpreted the sons of God of chapter 6 of Genesis to be a reference to supernatural beings rather than to the human descendants of the line of Seth. In fact, it was not until the 4th century A.D. that any view, any other view, was developed. So up until the 4th century, everybody agreed that the sons of God here spoke of angels. Now, if the term sons of God refers merely to the sons of Seth, we might also wonder why Moses didn't just say so. That would surely have cleared up everything. If, they, if he was speaking about the sons of Seth marrying the daughters of Cain, why didn't he just say so and avoid all this confusion? And why would the term sons of God be used in contrast to the daughters of who? Of men. You see, the natural reading there would tell us that the daughters that are spoken of are daughters of men, mankind. You know, the daughters of humans, of the human race. And this would indicate that they were not just the daughters of Cain's descendants. And it also seems to indicate that the term the sons of God is used in contrast to the offspring of men. In other words, the sons of God were the directly created offspring of God himself, as opposed to... To the daughters of man. Now, another issue to address if the phrase the sons of God is used to speak of the godly line of Seth's descendants is why the godly men would have been the ones to initiate the evil that took place here. Why would the godly men be the ones to start all this evil? And it was definitely evil, as we read about when God looked down and saw that. The wickedness of man was great. This is what, uh, you know, started perpetrating it. Well, first of all, sin perpetrated it. But. And why would all of Seth's male descendants be called the sons of God when we know that not all of the people that came from Seth were godly? You know, in both of their lines, there were some godly and some ungodly, Cain's line and Seth's line. And you would think that only the righteous, therefore, in Seth's line would be called God's sons, right? Only the righteous ones. But then if they were righteous and godly, 
why would they have begun this evil that we read about? Also, well, let me just skip over that. There's, I give you some more reasons in your notes. All right, why, too, did Moses mention only the union of godly men with ungodly women, if this view is correct? Why didn't he also mention the daughters of God intermarrying with the sons of men? Certainly, Seth's line didn't just produce sons, and Cain's line just produced daughters, because we know the Bible tells us otherwise. Remember, we read about that they each had other sons and daughters. And then, too, as mentioned, there is a serious problem of why God would wipe out, or I haven't mentioned this, that's what I skipped over, but why would God wipe out all the righteous, godly sons of Seth's line along with all the unrighteous of Cain's line, especially since to this point in time, God had not made a law prohibiting marriage between believers and unbelievers. And so why would he send such devastating judgment, you know, with a global flood to wipe out everybody except eight people for disobeying a law that he had never given about not marrying godly with ungodly? And why, too, would the physical union of godly men with ungodly women not have at least produced some positive influence on the offspring and on those ungodly women. I mean, I have often seen that when a godly man or a man, let's say a, a couple, the man gets saved, he has a definite positive influence on the, on the wife. And many, many times you see the wife soon after come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And so why wouldn't that have had some positive influence on not only the ungodly wife, but also on at least some of the offspring, you know, because they'd have a godly spiritual father as the head of the family. Why instead would the Lord only find eight righteous people by the time of the flood? And yet another problem to address is why the physical union between human uh, men from the line of Seth with human women from the line of Cain would produce giants. So we might wonder, is there perhaps another explanation regarding the sons of God? You know, that has maybe some better answers for us. Well, in fact, I've already sort of mentioned what another interpretation is regarding the sons of God. And it is the interpretation which says that the sons of God refers to angels. And actually to fallen angels, not to holy angels, but to fallen angels. And this view, as I've already mentioned, is supported by all Jewish ancient rabbinical writers um, and also by many, many godly men, by also the translators of the Septuagint. Those who support this view, that the sons of God speaks of fallen angels, um, mention once again how the term bene Elohim, which is what it literally means in the Hebrew, whenever it is used in the Old Testament or when a similar term is used in the Old Testament, it always speaks of angels without exception. Now, of course, in the New Testament, you will find the term sons of God to refer to believers, 
to human believers. You and I are the sons of God. But that is because we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we have been recreated directly by God himself. Now, one substantial reason for the view which says that the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6 were fallen angels is because of three New Testament passages. So get, put your finger in Genesis 6 and move over to the second to last book in the whole Bible, the little book of Jude. Remember we were there a couple weeks ago when we looked at Enoch and what he had to say. Um, three passages. The first one we're going to look at is Jude verses 6 and 7. In Jude 6, we are told about the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. And consequently, they were severely judged by God because they were, it tells us they were put in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And then notice in verse 7, it tells us, Jude compares the sin of those angels to the sin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who gave themselves over to fornication and went, went after what? Strange flesh. If, if you remember, the um, men of Sodom lusted. I mean, these guys were sick. The whole, actually, the whole town lusted to have fornication with the two holy angels who had come to visit Lot. You can read all about it in Genesis chapter 19 if you really want to get sick. I mean, it makes you sick to read about it. They wanted to know them, the two holy angels. Jude's implication here is that in like manner as the Sodomites, except the opposite situation, there were fallen angels who lusted after human women. It says they kept not their first estate. And however, unlike the Sodomites, these fallen angels had their way. You know, the men of Sodom did not have their way because what the angels do, the holy angels struck them blind. Um, but these fallen angels did have their way and they left their own habitations to go after strange flesh. Well, there's no other place in all Scripture which tells us about this atrocious sin that we read about here in Jude. And this, my page is out, <laughs> so I can show it to you. There's no other place that this would happen, that we read about these angels that left their own habitation and went after strange flesh, unless it's what we read about in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When Satan first lifted up his proud heart, you know, against God, to rebel against God, and subsequently fell from heaven, one-third of the total angelic host created by God chose to rebel with him. We're told about that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. And so, because they rebelled with him, they also fell with Lucifer, or Satan. And this one-third of the angelic host is what we refer to as fallen angels or, what's a more, another common term? Demons, right. We have to remember that Satan was the one who was addressed back in Genesis 3.15 when God gave that famous promise. Satan heard God directly tell him 
that the woman's seed was going to come and crush his head. So somewhere along the line, Satan conceived a plan to corrupt the entire human race. You know, at first he tried to corrupt Cain and then kill Abel, and then he saw God was going to replace Abel with always going to keep replacing the righteous line with whether it was Seth or Enos and so on and so on. And so he came up with a, we don't know when, but he came up with a, um, a plan to just corrupt all of humanity and thereby totally prevent the seed of the woman, the Messiah, from ever coming and crushing his head. And by the time of Noah, Satan almost succeeded in this plan, didn't he? You know, Jesus had to become a man. He had to uh, enter through the human line from Adam because he had to become a man in order to die for man, to die in man's place. So according to those who hold the view that the sons of God refer to fallen angels, it would appear then that some of the fallen angels, not all of them, but some of them volunteered or were chosen by Satan to help him contaminate the human race. We know that not all of the demons or fallen angel, angels were involved in this because not all of the fallen angels are confined in everlasting chains, as we just read about over in Jude. I wish they were, don't you? <laughs> but they're not. There are still a great many of them free to roam and do damage here on earth and um, in, the, in the, their principalities in the air as well. And, of course, we know during the Great Tribulation they're going to just have all kinds of, be involved in all kinds of um, awful things that will go on. It's also believed that the imprisoned fallen angels that we read about in Jude 6 were divinely additionally punished. You know, not only did they fall with Lucifer from heaven, but they were additionally punished by being chained in darkness, in Tartarus actually, um, because of their involvement, involvement in Genesis chapter 6 with human women. So what we could refer to these fallen angels as is doubly fallen angels. They fell twice, and they are currently in chains. Now, flip over, if you would, to Second Peter. A few books over from Jude. Second Peter, look at verse, um, uh, chapter 2. Second Peter 2, and look at verses 4 and 6. Because these verses seem to support this teaching that we've been talking about. We are told there that God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. The word in the Greek there for hell is Tartarus. And it says, And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now this cannot speak of those angels who originally fell with Lucifer because they were just sent to earth. You know, they were not confined to chains of darkness until the, the end time judgment. And it says, also look where it puts this, brings this into context here. It says, and God spared not the old world, that speaks of the antediluvian world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly 
and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we have another reference to Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. What this passage tells us is that there were fallen angels who, because of some abnormal wickedness, are no longer allowed the freedom of the rest of the fallen angels to roam this earth and the air. But they have instead been cast into strictest confinement in Tartarus, hell. And Peter also, you notice, connects this sin of these fallen angels to the time of Noah. And then, just like Jude 7, he does again mention Sodom and Gomorrah, the two ancient cities which were known for their sexual perversion. Now, those who interpret the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6 as fallen angels also say that the chained demons are the spirits in prison to which Christ preached after his death and before his resurrection. If you'll just go now to 1 Peter, one more book over, 1 Peter 3, look at verses 18 to 20. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. This passage tells us, here, I'll read it to you. It says, For Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of who? Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Peter here is clearly writing about imprisoned spirits who were disobedient during the days which preceded the flood. Now, if these were human spirits, all right, the spirits of humans who had died, and, and they were imprisoned during the days of Noah when God was patient, then why even mention their disobedience? You know, all human spirits which are in hell are there because of what? Their disobedience. It must be speaking of some other kind of being who was particularly disobedient at the time of Noah. And that would make sense if this passage is speaking of these doubly fallen angels. They apparently, and that's just a picture of hell there, they apparently compounded their original disobedience of following Satan in his initial rebellion against God by then also cohabitating with human women, the daughters of men, in their attempt to contaminate the entire human race so that the Messiah could never come. Now, it may have been to these twice-fallen angels who defied the law of their beings by going after strange flesh. Remember, we read about that in Jude. In their attempt to destroy God's plan for his son, and the redemption of man. It may have been to these spirits in prison then that Christ himself, after his victory on the cross, preached. You know, people say, well, what did he do during the, um, the three days when he was dead? Well, this may be part of the answer to that. He may have gone down there and told them personally of his success 
in fulfilling God's Genesis 3.15 promise. Remember, Christ possesses the keys to hell and death. Now, the Lord's preaching, I've heard this before, that people have said, well, people in hell get a second chance. His preaching would not have been, would have nothing to do, really, with the gospel message other than his victory over sin, death, and Satan. It would not, he would not have been preaching the gospel, whether it would uh, be to fallen angels, if you accept this view, or whether he went down there and was preaching to lost human souls. Either way, he would not have been preaching the gospel because that would imply that he was giving them a second chance, and there is a, that would be a clear violation of other scripture, um, you know, which says that, it's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. No second chances. Rather, it would appear that Christ descended to proclaim to these spirits in prison his victory over sin, over Satan, over death, over the grave, and, you know, the fact that he did, in spite of all their plans, he did fulfill the Genesis 3.15 promise of God. Now, we should also point out that the phrase in Genesis 6.2, all right, you can go back to Genesis which tells us that the um, sons of God took them wives of all which they chose, that does not necessarily mean that they married the daughters of men. The Hebrew word which is used there for wife is isha, and it's a word which is very, very commonly used in the Bible for uh, women, regardless of whether they were married or not. And this could mean that the sons of God took just as many women as they chose. Or that, like Lamech, you remember the, the bad Lamech over in Genesis 4.19, that they gathered to, for themselves harems of wives. The Hebrew verb, which is uh, uh, used for take, where it says that they took them wives in verse 2, that can easy, easily suggest <clears throat> that they took whatever women they wanted and also that the women were easily accessible to them. And those who go along with this angel view say that angels, you know, appear very super beautiful and powerful and that the women were definitely attracted to them. By the Lord Jesus' own words regarding, you know, the marrying and giving in marriage of Noah's day, he said, for is in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark. That Those words tell us that the antediluvian world had a very light and casual attitude toward the marriage bond. They were marrying and giving, meaning giving out. They were marrying and divorcing and just took marriage very lightly. As we know, Lamech, I just had him up here a minute ago, and his two, two wives, he certainly had a very... Um, strange idea about it. Certainly wasn't the, the program God had set up for one man and one woman. So, and we, all, we also know because of Lamech and because of this phrase that it says they took them wives of all that they chose, that it was a, a time of great polygamy, men with many wives, and also a time of great promiscuity. Now, of course, many reject this second view regarding the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6 because they reject the supernatural world of angels and demons and all that altogether. But even for those who do 
acknowledge that there is a world of spirits, there are still some objections to this second view, the view that I've just spent so much time telling you about, all right? Now, one particular problem has to do with the matter of salvation. Fallen angels have absolutely no possibility of redemption. A fallen angel can never, ever be saved. He has fallen, and that's it. No such thing as grace in his life. In other words, there is no hope for a fallen angel. No way that they can be saved. Jesus Christ is not going to become an angel and die again on the cross to redeem all the lost angels. However, on the other hand, fallen man can become saved, right? He does have the possibility of salvation. So you see, there would be a major problem with the offspring of angels and men because they would be half human and therefore half redeemable and half angel or half unredeemable. That would be a problem, wouldn't it? It would be a problem. Now, the other huge problem with this view is that these half-and-half kind of creatures would be in clear violation of God's established law of biogenesis, which keeps living beings or kinds reproducing just after their own kinds, right? So to produce a half-human, half-angel would take a bigger satanic miracle than the power of God, and Satan is not more powerful than God. All right, so we have two huge problems with this view. Okay, so after demonstrating then the problems which arise with both the interpretation that says that the sons of God are the godly men from the line of Seth's descendants, and also, we're showing you some of the problems about the interpretation which claims that the term refers to fallen angels, you might wonder, well, is there a solution to this problem? And yes, the answer is there does seem to be a solution. Now, you are free to take whichever interpretation you choose out of the three I'm giving you, but the one that I'm about to give you, I think, makes the best sense. The solution to me is that the sons of God were indeed fallen angels attempting to halt God's plan for the coming Savior by contaminating the entire human race. However, rather than accomplishing their goal by direct physical sexual union with the... With the um, their spirit bodies with human flesh bodies of women. These fallen angels instead contaminated the human population by way of demonic possession. They possessed the bodies of men who made themselves accessible to these demons by their godless lifestyles and by their probably occultic practices because that's how you open yourself up to demonic possession. If you in, if engage in occultic practices and have a very godless lifestyle, you are opening yourself up for de demons to possess you. Now, because the men of the pre-flood world 
grew increasingly obsessed with the cult of beauty and sex and self. Remember we talked about that when we looked at Lamech and his sons. And also they became obsessed with all kinds of evils, as we'll read about here in verse 5 of this chapter. This made them easy prey for these fallen angels to take up habitation in their bodies and then use those bodies of the men to exploit the women who, of course, were also ungodly and easily complied with this situation. The fallen angels who participated in this sin purposely did leave their own habitation. Remember we read that in in Jude? They left their own habitation to go after strange flesh, human flesh, because they themselves were attracted to the beautiful daughters of men. But their whole intention was to destroy God's plan for his son to come into the world to save men and to defeat Satan. Because they are spirit beings with celestial bodies, they could not have physical union with human women. And so what they did is they possessed the bodies of human men in order to accomplish their wickedness. Probably at the very same time that God sent the flood, he also imprisoned these fallen angels so that they would no longer roam over the world and the air like the other demons who did not participate in this sin. So the Genesis 6 sons of God are confined. I believe they are the ones who are confined to darkness in Tartarus, as it said in 2 Peter 2.4, because Tartarus is not the regular place for departed spirits of men. Now, the sin of these fallen angels, please understand this, it did not lessen by any means the sinfulness and the responsibility of the humans who were involved. And therefore, you know, God was justified in sending the flood and wiping out the human race. The humans were just as guilty as the fallen angels. The offspring, now, of the... um, the union between demon-possessed men and women, human women, would still be 100% humans, right? You've got a man copulating with a woman. And whether both of them are demon-possessed or not, they still would bring forth a child 100% human. And therefore, that would not violate God's law of biogenesis, that likes like kinds reproduce like kind. It also would not create some grotesque half-and-half creature who did not know whether he could get saved or couldn't get saved because he was half-angel and half-man. And, you know, that would put us in the realm of uh, legends and fairy tales and the Greek mythology if we had creatures who were half-and-half. It's just the same old thing with evolution. We cannot have half-and-half creatures, half-reptiles and half-fish. It just is a violation of God's law. In Genesis 6-4, we are then told that there were giants in those days. All right, aren't you glad we've covered the sons of God? Now we're going to move on to giants. (laughs) Now the word for giants in the Hebrew is nephilim. Okay? And it comes from the Hebrew word nephal, N-A-P-H-A-L, which literally means fall. 
So the most natural interpretation for this word is those who have fallen or fallen ones. So you could read it as there were fallen ones in the earth in those days. And that would make sense with what we have just been talking about, wouldn't it? There were indeed fallen ones in those days. If these fallen ones were the offspring of the union between demon-possessed men and women, um, then this could be a reference to to their false fathers, you know, their pseudo-fathers, the demons. Now, the normal word for giant, which means a huge man, the normal word is the word Rapha, R-A-P-H-A. It means just a huge man. It is the word that is used in the Bible to speak of Goliath and Og. Oh, gee, he was another giant. He was even bigger than Goliath. It's not the word, however, which is used here in Genesis 6-4. So there is no dogmatic reason for teaching that the children who were born to demon-possessed parents were giants. You know, great big huge men. Although this might have been possible. I'm not saying it wasn't possible. It might have been. I mean, there could have uh, been some kind of satanically controlled interbreeding of certain men with gene factors for large physical stature with women with similar genes. You know, and this would have produced dominant characteristics for... um, Largeness through genetic engineering. And Satan is clever enough to figure that out. You know, if you got a whole bunch of these great big huge uh, basketball players and started interbreeding them with, with Amazon women, you'd, you'd produce a race of very large people. And these are not, please understand, like Goliath and Og and some of the other giants that we read about in the Bible were not Jack and the Beanstalk kind of giants that were way up, you know, to the top of the ceiling here. They're just very large men, some of them only a little bit larger than some of our present-day basketball players. So, but J. Vernon McGee says, actually, if you read Genesis 6-4 carefully, he says that it really just says there were giants in the earth in those days. It doesn't really say that the giants were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And, you know, when I read it, I said, well, yeah, that's true. It really doesn't say that. It just says there were giants in the earth in those days. Um, And there, there were. Paleontologists have proven that there were giants in those days. They have found huge giant, I mean, not like huge that way, but very large human footprints in fossils. I mean, there were giant dinosaurs and mammoths and all kinds of giant birds and insects, right? I, you know, so what's the big deal if there were big men? <clears throat> so there were giants in those days. Um, but it does seem kind of strange that the Bible would just mention giants out of the blue. You know, that there wouldn't be some connection with the sons of God <clears throat> and the daughters of men. So there must be some kind of a connection. And it could be that it's just saying that there were fallen ones. Or it could be that the offspring, maybe God cursed the offspring um, of these demon-possessed men with the women so that their physical size matched the enormity of the sins of that day. So, the um, you know, 
we have so many legends. I don't care what country you go to, what nation you go to in the world. You'll always read in storybooks and things like that for children. There's always accounts of giants. You know those came from somewhere, right? They originated somewhere along the line. And I believe that is because back in the, in the not only the, po- the pre-flood world, but in, even in the post-flood world, there were giants because Goliath and his, doesn't he have brothers? He had brothers. Who, the guy with the six fingers and toes. And, there were giants back in, even after the flood. So I think that's where all the legends like of Hercules and uh, Gilgamesh and others like that have come from. Of course, they've been greatly exaggerated so that these men were just ridiculously huge. I mean, they were big guys, but not as crazy as the legends would tell us. Well, the end of Genesis 6-4 is where we are actually told that the children born from the union of the sons of God and the daughters of men were mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Um, Now, whether these are the same as the giants or the fallen ones that are mentioned at the beginning of the verse, we don't really know for certain. But whatever the case might be, they were still 100% men. Notice it says that they were mighty men, right? Not half angels, half men. And men of renown. And if they were extra large, that, of course, would explain why they're called mighty. But they were probably also called mighty not only because they were extra big and extra strong, but also they were mighty in wickedness and in their violence. Now, it would seem that what we read in the first verses, then, of Genesis 6 tells us of a global satanic influence which was a a contributing cause for the increasing degeneracy of those days which preceded the flood. In fact, it was this abnormal satanic influence which led to such an extreme punishment by God. I mean, you have to admit that wiping everybody out of the earth except for eight people is very extreme. And this would explain it if, you know, Satan was up to something like this, contaminating the whole human race. God waited absolutely as long as he possibly could wait before he did purge the world clean. But if he had waited any longer, even Noah and his family would have been contaminated. And then what would have happened? Satan would have won the victory in preventing the seed of the woman, the Messiah, from ever coming to earth to save man. So it was God's grace that sent the flood. And this then appears to be, you can make up your own opinion on this, but this is what I got out of all this study the last couple weeks, and I'm so glad I did have two weeks to do this because it was kind of drove me crazy. But this does appear to be Satan's scheme, and it would have worked if God was not sovereign God, but of course he is. He had a plan, and it would be carried out regardless of what either fallen men or fallen angels attempted to do. And the unfolding of that plan was first revealed to Enoch. Remember, oops, there's my giant dinosaur. To Enoch when he named his son Methuselah. When he dies, it shall come. And a further revealing of God's plan is given to us in Genesis 6, 3. So let's look now at the spirit's strife, verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, 
yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. The scene in Genesis 6-3 now takes us from earth to heaven, all right? And God was not pleased at all with what he saw going on down on earth. And therefore, he decreed that his spirit would not always strive, which means contend with or shield man. He would give men how many more years only? 120, I think that's pretty generous. He'd give them 120 more years to repent of their wickedness. He is long-suffering, but he does have a limit. If he didn't have a limit, as I had just told you, he would have shown no grace at all because um, if he had not sent the flood, then the whole human race would have been contaminated and you and I would have no possibility of ever being saved. Now, it is tradition... I know I've heard this and I've said it because I've thought it was true all my life, and it may very well be. Um, But it is really only tradition that says it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And they get that 120 years from this verse that God said he would give man another 120 years. Um, And it may be that that, those 120 years were the years it took Noah to build the ark. I don't know. Um, And during those years, we do know that Peter, because Peter tells us that Noah was preaching righteousness. So for 120 years, man was able to hear about getting himself right before judgment would come. Well, if this is true, then Noah was told to build the ark when he was 480 years old, which was actually 20 years before he gave birth to Japheth, who was his firstborn recorded son. He may have had other sons that we don't know about um, because he was 500 years old when Japheth was born. Now we have to remember that the people of that day had been receiving the witness of the Spirit through such men as Adam. Remember now, Adam lived all the way until the time of Noah's father, Lamech, the good Lamech. They also, the people of that day, not only had Adam, and I mean Adam could, and Eve, could tell them a lot of things about God, right? About the wonder and grace and just magnificence of God. Because they had walked in the garden face to face with God. So they had Adam there. They had Seth, who was a godly man. They had Enos, who had, you know, a revival during his days. And they had Enoch and his witness of how he walked with God so closely that God just took him. And they also had Methuselah. And uh, and his very name was a continual reminder to them of coming judgment. And of course, they also had Noah. Yet they consistently and repeatedly resisted, resisted, resisted the Holy Spirit's work of striving after them, contending with them, trying to convict them of their sin and thereby shield them, which is another uh, meaning for the word strive, trying to shield them from the coming judgment. They were joining, the people were joining Satan's forces in ever-increasing numbers and willfully resisting and quenching the voice of God's Spirit, struggling to be heard. And they were so much consumed by the lusts of their own flesh and the lust of their eyes and the pride of life that they, they became totally enslaved by those things. 
and also enslaved by the demons. And the result was that God's spirit would no longer, after an additional 120 years, would no longer continue to struggle with the souls of men. Since it's not God's will that any man should perish, and he knew, because he knows the end from the beginning, he knew that all but eight people would perish, it grieved God to do what he had to do. You see, it was not just the fallen angels who participated in the evil of that day. It was the people themselves. So let's look at their evil in verses 5 to 7, sovereign sadness. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is pretty bad. Verse 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Genesis 6, 5 tells us that God saw, God looked down from heaven and he saw that the wickedness of man was great. And when God says something is great, it's extreme. And that he saw that every, and he knows the mind and the heart, he saw that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. I mean, do you know what that's saying? Not even one good thought ever. Only evil continually. It was man, you see, who willingly turned from God and who followed so much in the way of Satan and in the way of Cain and in the way of Lamech, the bad Lamech, that he opened himself up to this demonic influence. If man was righteous, then the fallen angels would have had no access to him at all, would not have been able to use them for their wicked purposes. In fact, it says that man became so sinful that God not only assessed his wickedness as great, but he said that even the thoughts of their minds was only evil continually. Man had become bold in his flagrant, willful sin against God. He became so mean, so vile, so immoral, so destructive, terrifying, fleshly, obscene, uh, flagrant, filthy, foul, gross, and devilish that it says God repented that he had even made man. It grieved his heart that man had become so self-centered, so self-seeking, so self-exalting and prideful and greedy and bitter and hateful and despiteful and vengeful and violent and perverse and unbelieving. Now, we do have to address the meaning of the word repented. The word repented, which is given in verse 5, is yinahim. And it literally means to groan, to pant, to lament, to grieve because of the misery of others. Now, the word repented here does not mean, please understand this, it does not mean that God changed his mind. It doesn't mean that. If it did, it would be a clear contradiction of God's character. Because God himself told us in Malachi 3.6, I change not. Rather, what the word yinahem means is that it sorrowed God that he had made man. 
Man's wickedness was cutting at the very heart of God himself, causing him to groan, to pant, to grieve, to lament over all the pain that man was causing himself and causing his world and causing others and causing, of course, his own eternal destiny. God was deeply grieved that man was willfully separating himself from his creator and forever dooming himself to eternity in hell. Remember, God did not make hell for man. He made hell for the fallen demons. So it's sorrow. he sorrowed for what man was doing to himself. God saw all this, you know, as a loving father, a tender father would see the willful rebellion of his own child. It was a situation which not only angered God, you know, because his holiness is aroused against sin, but it also grieved him because he knew that he would have to punish the world of sinful mankind with the flood and also with eternal damnation. However, if the creature rejects and um, rejects not only the love of God, but the long-suffering of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, of his own creator, then he must face the justice of his own creator. God's justice cried out that he must destroy man from the face of the earth along with those creatures who were created for man. You know, the beasts and the creeping things and the fowl of the air would with man also be destroyed. Of course, though, you know, he saved some of each kind so that they would reproduce in the new world. Man must realize that his sin does not just affect himself, does it? Adam learned this in the garden. It affects everyone else around him, including his world, including the animal world, because no man is an island unto himself. Now, it's interesting to note that the last time we saw uh, we, or we read the, the three words and God saw. Look over at Genesis 1.31. The last time we read the words and God saw, like we read here in verse 5, was when God looked back at everything that he had just created and he, it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. And now only five chapters later, look at Genesis 6, 5, only five chapters later, there is a completely different picture. God saw what this time? That wickedness in the earth was very great. And he saw that every imagination of man's thoughts was only evil continually. What had made such a vast, a vastly tremendous difference between the end of chapter 1 and the opening of chapter 6. Exactly. One word, sin. If anything teaches us about the doctrine of the total depravity of man, that the heart is desperately wicked, that it's deceitful above all things, who can know it, that it would be a passage like Genesis 6-5. Man is very, very wicked at his heart. And there is no hope for him apart from God. But there is a saving solution. If we just ended right here, this story would end very sadly. It would have been a tragic day for all of us in here because none of us would have ever been born um, if everybody had to be wiped out. 
God himself would have been defeated by Satan because he would not have been able to keep his promise of a coming savior, savior uh, you know, through the seed of the woman. And uh, it would just be hopeless, hopeless and helpless if the story ended at Genesis 6-6, or 6-7, I should say. But the story didn't end here, did it? There is a saving solution for a seemingly hopeless situation. And in the next lesson, we are going to find that even in a day of worldwide rampant demonic evil, the Lord God had preserved the precious godly seed of the woman. It tells us in verse 8 that a single man named Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And that's the first time we see the word grace in the Bible. So that's what we will continue with, Lord willing, next week as we look at Noah. Let's pray. Father, it's been a difficult lesson, and I just thank you so much for the patience of your people. I pray, Lord, that this has been made a little clearer to them because I know so many people have questions about this, and we know that only really in eternity will we find out some of the answers to these, these difficult passages. But, Father, how we do want to praise you and thank you that you are in control. And even when the world is just filled with all kinds of uh, wickedness and vileness and even satanic activity as we get closer and closer to the last days, that you will keep your promises.